She was 21 when she lost her legs and fingers to that staph infection. And then she set out to create her life and figure out what she would do with it. And she created a lot of great work during that period and kind of got on the map as an artist. People started to know who she was and what she was doing. She got some new friends. She lost a lot of old friends. She had some boyfriends. She got a beautiful dog who was her companion. She was alive. She was living a life. She would apply for these artist grants and explore ways that she could keep creating things and keep living and keep surviving. And somehow she had connected with uh, a choreographer in New York who was somebody and would help her create this piece called Five Open Mouths. And the, the, the title Five Open Mouths came from a poem that she wrote shortly after she lost her fingers. It's an interesting story. I don't know where you can find this poem. I hope you can find it somewhere. She, and the poem describes um, waking up in the middle of the night after the amputations and unwrapping the bandages off her hands. When they amputate a, a limb or a finger or something, they don't actually sew up the stump right away. They actually leave it open for some reason for a period of time. I guess there's some amount of healing that has to happen while it's open. It's a very painful... All these nerves are out in the open. It's a very painful period. And her hands were were, were uh, bandaged up like giant boxing gloves to protect these open wounds. And she had unwrapped them to look at and see what was left of her hands in the middle of the night. And they were, um, these, her, her fingers were like five open mouths. And she created this dance piece called Five Open Mouths. And um, the best way that I could describe it to you, what it was about, it was about confronting the reality of facing the world with a body other than the one you thought was yours, other than the one you thought was beautiful. Like facing the world with this disfigured, this cut off, amputated body. And, you know, the dance piece starts with her being, like, strong physically on these springy legs, these prosthetic legs. And she, she actually was a very athletic person, and she raised her, her, her level of fitness to do this stuff, to do this dance stuff. And eventually, like, at some point in the dance piece, she removes her prosthetic legs, and she's completely exposed and unaided by fake legs. She's completely vulnerable. It was the beginning of her life's greatest work. She went on to tour with Axis Dance and create more works like this, which reached a great many people all over the world. And he gave her something, you know, to fight for and to live for. It was hard for her to keep up her physical stamina to, to carry out this career as she like got into her 30s, got older, and, you know, as she had to deal with the wear and tear of you know, running six miles a day and training and touring, um, it, it, it gave a lot of wear and tear on her stumps, her leg stumps, where they met the prosthetic legs. And, and it was debilitating sometimes. And it slowed her down and it became a big struggle. And, you know, as a result, survival was a big struggle for her. I think there were a lot of other problems too. 
I, I, I have a recollection at one point, she and I were talking about life and my dad was really on her to like get out, maybe start working again, start, you know, being a productive citizen. And, um, he, you know, he meant well, but she felt he wasn't being very understanding about the bigger picture. And um, she said that she felt that it was enough, it was big enough for her to just worry about being alive. We had a conversation a couple of years ago because we had read in the paper somebody had committed suicide. I don't know, we were having a conversation about it. You know, she'd asked me if I had ever had suicidal thoughts. Maybe even I brought it up. Maybe that's what we were talking about. Maybe it wasn't the story in the paper. I really don't remember. But I, was, I told her that in the early 2000s, uh, when I was unemployed and going through like some major life transitions and stuff and just really feeling like a failure, on top of having usually a pretty high baseline level of depression, anxiety, and crisis anyways, like on a good day. So... You know, we'd been discussing all this. And she mentioned that she had heard of a way uh, that people kill themselves by hanging themselves, like, on a closet door or something. I, I wish I could re better remember the details of the conversation. We were having a very matter-of-fact conversation that sort of tied into the practicalities of it. Like, it, we weren't being gross about it. and I And I certainly wasn't thinking about doing anything about it. I just... I wasn't coming from that at all, but we were having just like a very kind of a practical conversation. And, and the discussion, you know, was about, you know, the worry that you leave this big mess for someone else to clean up or that like um, the concern that your loved ones will find you in some horrible state after you've passed, you know, and that, you know, she was she was talking about that concern a person might have and, and that this method of hanging yourself on a closet door in a room was a good method for that reason or something. I think it, now that I'm telling you about it, I think the reason was because the door would serve as protection from the person who finds you. You could place a note outside the door and you'd have the door. As opposed to there's a note outside the door and they can fling the door open and see right inside and see you. You know, it was this thing of like, being able to hide behind the door after you've killed yourself was was the the reason why this method was a method. This was a conversation we had like two years ago in passing. There were some other things in the conversation, you know, because um, because I've been everybody knows someone who's had thoughts like that, so you you know, or you've had them yourself. So it's a conversation I've had with other people too. Camilla and I went to San Francisco in February. And Lisa made um, a lot of efforts to make sure that we saw her and connected with her. And we did see her a couple of times while we were out there. We saw her perform in this big performance art thing. It was pretty amazing. We were lucky to get to see it. And she was a big feature in it. She was doing dance on her table leg stilts. Um, people really loved her in that performance. It was like really well received. It was pretty awesome. And the people who she loved were around her and involved in that performance. I saw them there. And that was pretty awesome. And um, 
That was the last time I saw her. She came to visit me on the circus once. Um, she flew down and came backstage and hung out. Stayed on the circus train with me for like a couple weeks. Even, even rode the train with me on a jump from San Diego up to Oakland, California. I mean, very few people, even people close to me, ever got to visit the circus train, let alone ride it from one city to another. She really, she wanted to do that. She wanted to have that experience. And, and, and I'm glad I got to have it with her. Just to be, you know, on the vestibule of a train with a person for days at a time and just watching the landscape whiz by out there. It's like being out in the middle of the desert alone with someone. Because there's no way to get back to civilization until... Civilization just comes and saves you until it just shows up. And you know it's coming, you know. It's not like being stranded, really. When we got to Oakland, we had, uh, we had some days together. And we went and stayed at a hostel, actually, in Chinatown in San Francisco and explored things together. And it's interesting, like, she really insisted on trying to do everything and push her limits all the time far more than me. I'm the kind of person I say, oh, if I want to go out and do one or two things in a day, that's enough. I'll be exhausted running around San Francisco, seeing things. I, I, I pace myself. I, I, wanna, I don't want to be so exhausted that I can't get back in one piece or that I'm just, you know, unable to safely function. <laughs> but, you know, she really insisted on like a big itinerary. And there were times I couldn't believe it. I was sometimes like shocked or mad at her that she could barely get herself back you know at the end of a, a day of sightseeing there was i had to carry her up the stairs to the hostel the last time that we returned she was so tired and i was so tired we just couldn't keep our eyes open and then you know she moved she moved to san francisco and started her career with access dance dancing full-time she reached out she texted me once or twice and she was going through some relationship drama in her life and a lot of drama trying to find secure housing in San Francisco where she wanted to be. Her life was like held together loosely by threads. And her inner world was falling apart. And this is around the time that I was getting ready to move to Las Vegas to start a new gig. And... I would be leaving behind the home that Camilla and I have in Boston and really needing for someone to sort of take my place and live there with Camilla. So the timing just seemed amazing that Lisa just really needed support and I did too. I needed someone in that house. And so I urged her to pack up, leave San Francisco take six months or a year, and regroup in Boston, stay with Camilla. She was so excited about it that she posted it on Facebook the next morning. I'm moving to Boston. Like, smile faces and exclamation points. and It's really cool. And that afternoon, my brother Dave called me on the phone, 
something that doesn't happen that often, you know. He, he calls me when it's something important. And um, he wanted to talk to me about all this. And he had spoken to Lisa, and he wanted to tell me that he felt that it's not what she needed. And that he felt she needed a counseling session or something, and that it would make things worse if she moved to Boston. I asked him, asked him what he thought she wanted. And he said that, he said, she doesn't know what she wants right now. And I felt mad about that. I felt like he was doing too much for her. I mean, part of it was selfish. I really wanted her to take my place in Boston and live with Camilla. That was a big part of it. But I think I had clear boundaries about what my interests were in it. And I think that I stepped back. I figured he could tell her whatever he thought was his best advice for her. And she was an adult and she could make up her mind. I left it at that. He went out there, spent some time with her. And I know that that meant a lot to her. And she really needed that. That's probably the most important thing. And she was continuing to look for a place to live. I talked to her on the phone and um, connected her with a friend of mine who might be able to help her out and who would offer her a place to stay for a few days while she looked in Santa Cruz for a place. Also in that conversation, she told me that she was looking for a home for her dog, Bear. And that really raised an alarm with me because this was a service dog for her and the dog that well, while she said that it was causing problems for her finding housing, it's really hard to imagine that it did because service dogs don't don't really create a problem doing that that I know of. It did raise some alarms with me, but I really felt I had time. I felt I was talking to her, you know. We had a long talk that day. We talked for about over an hour. I think we talked for an hour and a half. Talked a lot about what was going on. I think both of us were sometimes sad. Like the pain was there. We could feel the pain between us. There was pain. I felt that she had pain, you know. And the last thing she said was, um, let's try to stay in touch more or more regularly. And her, like, her voice broke as she said it. She really, I could hear on the other end of the phone, she was falling apart. Um, I had some, I had a text, some messages with her on Facebook um, a few days later. And um, then like really early in the morning on October 3rd, I woke up early. I woke up around 4 a.m., something like that, 5 a.m., I looked at Facebook, and she had just minutes before had logged on, she had posted a new profile picture of herself and a picture of um, a light bulb in her house. I clicked, I made some comment on it. Let me see, see if I can find it. So here's this picture that she posted that night, October 3rd. It's like three-quarter view. Her eyes look a little glassy, like maybe she's crying, but her, like, her skin's clear, she doesn't look red. There's like one light bulb, maybe. I don't see the dog in the picture. 
It's unusual for her to take a selfie like that and put it up. It was definitely unusual. A friend had texted me a little later that morning asking about her, and I'd said, I'm worried about her. Earlier that morning, she got up in the middle of the night. It was still dark out. She was alone in her home in San Francisco with her dog. She noticed the sound of the dog snoring and liked it. She made coffee the way I do with a Bialetti on the stovetop and liked the sound of the gurgling and the steam that it makes. Took the dog out for a little walk. Observed how peaceful it was out. Observed that the fog would be rolling in off the bay in a few hours. She reflected on the people in her life who she loved. She reflected on the teachers in her life who taught her. The friends who helped her through the worst times. She put the dog outside the door of her room. And she hanged herself on the door of her room. I think the most troubling thing to me is this idea that she was in a lot of pain. She was very unhappy at the end of her life and that she was alone. I find that um, deeply disturbing. I, fi I find it intolerable. I think the next thing that I find terribly troubling about this is the idea that her dog for hours, days, and even some weeks going forward probably still waited for her and wondered when she would come for him. Yeah, you know, I'm mad that she left me here, that she abandoned me. There is no one else in the world with whom I could laugh so deeply I feel that she took that with her. I don't think that her life was cut short. That was her whole life. It's not what people expected to happen. It seems cut off, you know? It seems like there was more. She didn't get old. We didn't get all the time with her. We didn't get to say everything. We didn't get to see everything she could do. But the length of her life is now what it is. It's now determined. I don't think it's right to speculate why she did it. That's too easy. And it's too hard. And it's wrong. We can't understand that. If we could understand that, we wouldn't be here. I thought a lot about what you would go through in your last moments if you died that way. You know, how... Um, there's a period of time that you'd be aware that you'd done it, that you were dying, that it was going to be over and the lights would go out, but wherein it, they hadn't gone out yet. And there would be pain. And then there might be regrets or whatever. But all of this, you know, you could sum up all of this with courage. It takes a certain kind of courage to go there. It takes more courage to stay, but it does take a certain kind of courage to go. 
know, and then when someone leaves, you do ask yourself, like, what did this person leave me? What's their legacy for me? What did their life mean to me? That's hard to put in words and to just describe someone's life as mile markers separated by many steps. It doesn't do it justice, but but maybe there is something the person left you, you know, maybe there's a picture, maybe there's a feeling. Maybe there's a way they changed you. When Lisa moved to San Francisco, I took over her house in Lower Alston. And a lot of the things that were there when I moved in, I just left there. They remained, including this small sticker, a sign, a a, a line of type written in German at the door, something you would see every time you walked out into the world. And it said, the thing you fear is the thing you must do. My sister Lisa died October 3rd, 2013. She would have been 41 years old on October 20th. You've been listening to the Frickin' Circus podcast at www.frickincircus.com. If you want to drop me a line, just send me an email, frick at frickincircus.com. And um, I, I don't know. Just glad you're listening. And I will um, next week, come back around next week, I'm going to post... Uh, flashback episode that Lisa was on. Till then, peace out, sauerkraut.